practice that they had used to structure their lives. And in disregarding those practices, in proclaiming that he came to establish something altogether new, the switch gets flipped. And by the end of the stories we look at today, they're already planning to kill Jesus. Mark is big on irony throughout his his gospel. And one of the chief ironies throughout the book is the fact that it's the religious leaders, it's those who have spent their life studying the law, those who were experts in the things that should have led them to know who Jesus is. It's that group who oppose Jesus while Gentiles and sinners and even demons are getting the significance of his coming. They know who he is and they know why he matters. In this first of many groups of stories of opposition to Jesus, what we get is a chance to look deeply into what it is that could cause a group of people like this to miss the significance of his coming. Why did they fail to understand who Jesus was and how he mattered for them? And in getting that opportunity, we get to ask ourselves, what would it take for us to avoid missing the significance of Jesus? What must we do if we are to deeply and authentically connect with what he came to bring? Those are the questions we'll consider this morning, uh, beginning with Mark chapter 2 and verse, uh, verse 18. So if, if you wouldn't mind standing with me in honor of God's word as we read from Mark chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new, and the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to them, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. 
the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's word. You may be seated. The first story Mark tells us in this, in, in this section of chapter 2 makes one simple point. The Pharisees, the religious authorities, primarily represented by the Pharisees, they miss the significance of Jesus' coming. The religious authorities miss the significance of Jesus. We get the clearest evidence of this that we've gotten yet in this question about fasting. This is not the first sign we've seen, as I mentioned before. That came in Jesus' claim to forgive sins and his decision to eat with sinners. But here, Jesus goes even further to call him out, call these people out in the way that he responds to their questions. So here's the scene. The Pharisees and the disciples of John are fasting. We're not told why, but it wasn't uncommon. Regular fasting was just a normal part of Jewish life. Whatever the reason they were fasting, it causes some people who are looking on to wonder why Jesus' disciples weren't fasting too. These people, and as we're going to see more clearly later, especially the Pharisees, expected that Jesus was going to conform to the practices that they believed defined holiness and faithful living. They have a system in place that, if they're faithful to it, they believe will secure the favor of God. And they expect Jesus, if he is a credible religious leader, he will come and encourage better, more faithful participation in this same system, right? He will be about renewal of what exists already. They miss the fact that he brings a new paradigm altogether. Now, to, to, to fully understand the way this works, we have to understand a little bit about fasting and what it meant uh, to, to uh, Jews in the first century. The fasting of the Pharisees wasn't called for anywhere in the Old Testament. There's really only one day set aside for fasting in the law that's recorded for us in, in the first five books of the Old Testament. It was the Day of Atonement, the day that, the, that the, the nation of Israel came together to acknowledge that they were sinful and to ask God's forgiveness, to offer sacrifice and to show their own humiliation for their sins through fasting. That was the only day set aside in the Old Testament. But... Fasting was practiced commonly at other times in Jewish life. Some different groups added personal fast days for a whole variety of reasons. The Pharisees, for instance, fasted on Mondays and Thursdays every week. Monday and Thursday was their day that they fasted. There was t many, many reasons that you could do this. If, if you lost a loved one, the death of a loved one, you probably fast to show your mourning. If you were ill, you might fast as a way of maybe of purification or of or of perhaps repentance over thinking there was some sin that caused the illness. If you were experiencing some sort of bad time, you some sort of uh, trouble in your life, no matter, no matter where it might come from, you might fast as, as a way of trying to move past it, to seek the presence of God and to seek his favor. You might, uh, you might fast for, uh, as a symbol of your repentance. Uh, you might fast for, one of the interesting things I read this week is that they often fasted as a way of fighting off the demons. They thought that through fasting, somehow, they could push back against the powers of evil. Uh, you could fast to mourn. You could fast to seek the presence of God. Many reasons for fasting besides the one set aside in the Old Testament. And Jesus isn't buying any of them. For some reason, the Pharisees are fasting. Disciples of John are fasting. Jesus isn't. So they come asking why. And his response is 
incredibly insightful. Jesus was a master of these familiar images, of using these vivid, uh, everyday kind of, uh, kind of pictures, word pictures, to create an appreciation for what he's trying to say, to make, the, make his point land more fully. And here he does that three, in three different ways to explain why he's not fasting. And the, the first one is really the meat of his argument. He talks about himself as a bridegroom. Why don't your disciples fast? He's asked. And he responds in a question. Can a wedding guest fast when the bridegroom is with him? Is that a time for mourning and for humiliation? No, obviously. The implication is a wedding is time for feasting, for joy and celebration. And in this culture, that was true even more than it is in our own. They would, they would sometimes feast for a week or more to celebrate a wedding. Jesus comes bringing joy and feasting. Fasting has no place in light of why he's here. Think about it. We've already seen some, some specific reasons that Jesus came. Fasting fits with none of them. There's no need to fast to seek forgiveness, for example, when the Son of God is here among you and he's come here primarily to forgive sins. That's what we looked at in the stories last time. He pronounces forgiveness among those who are the most needy in his culture. He eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. Why fast for forgiveness of sins when God has sent his son here to forgive you? No need to fast for self-denial as a way of sort of winning favor of God when Jesus, the greatest possible gift that God could give and the greatest sign of his favor is here among you. Why do you fast to gain something that has already been delivered to you more fully than you could have ever imagined? There's no need to fast for fear of demons when the one who casts demons out with a word is standing in front of you. They fast, Jesus now explains, because they miss the significance of his coming and the fact that his kingdom makes those expressions of mourning and humiliation unnecessary. Jesus is here, his kingdom has come, and it is time to celebrate. That's his point. The problem is that these religious authorities expected Jesus to be just another reform movement. The Pharisees were a reform movement. They saw the, the Old Testament practices. The people of God had, this, had inherited this system of belief and practice, and they didn't think that people were faithful enough to it, especially under the, the rule of the Roman Empire. And so they sponsored a renewal effort. And they, are, they, they tried to demonstrate through their own piety what godly living should look like. They were a renewal movement and they expected that from Jesus. If he's going to have any credibility at all, he's got to help people be more faithful to what we've already got. They miss the fact that what Jesus brings is something altogether new, that he can't be fit into any existing mold, that he does not square with what they expect from a religious leader. That's the significance of Jesus' next two analogies. So I, I am not a, uh, what, what is a person who sows called? I don't sow. I don't know the, uh, I don't know the, uh, yeah, seamstress. I'm not a seamstress. I, I don't know exactly uh, from experience how this analogy works, but apparently if, you, if you're trying to patch a hole and you use a piece of cloth that's never been washed before, that piece of cloth is going to shrink, right? The old cloth has, has already shrunk as much as it's going to. So if you, if you sew on a patch of new cloth and then you wash it, 
well, it's, it's going to shrink, and it's going to tear the whole thing, and, and it's useless, and it, it makes a worse tear than what you had before. Trying to plug Jesus into this system when he is himself bringing something altogether new that transcends what they thought God wanted from them is like trying to sow this patch that's only going to do more harm than good. The next analogy is to wine and wineskins. Apparently, old wineskins were already stretched. Something about the fermentation process of the wine expands a little bit. I didn't know that. I can't prove that to you, but apparently that's the way it works. And old wineskins are already stretched out as much as they're going to be stretched. But you put new wine in there and fill it up after it's already stretched, and it's going to burst the entire skin, and you ruin the skin, and you lose all the wine, and, and it's a mess. Jesus and what he brings is not just the same old stuff going into the same old system. He brings something altogether new. The problem isn't the Old Testament and its laws. Those were given by God and had served a wonderful purpose for thousands of years, pointing ahead to the Messiah who would one day come. The problem is all of these layers that had been built on top of that system to try to better uh, fulfill its demands, that these layers had become for these Pharisees, what it meant to, to, to gain the favor of God. And they expected Jesus to fit into their mold. And he did not come to do that. The Pharisees miss the significance of Jesus coming. That's Mark's first point. So why? Why did these greatest experts in the Hebrew Scriptures, these people who had devoted their lives to studying what God had already revealed and, and trying to, to live in light of what God had said, how did these, these greatest experts in the Hebrew Scriptures fail to recognize Jesus when he appeared and fail to recognize that what he brought could not fit the old mold? The short answer is that they've taken means to an end and they've made those means into ends in themselves. They've taken means to ends and converted them into ends in themselves. They've taken external practices or commitments that are rooted in something valuable, in something true, in something even noble, and, and something that, that, that would please God, and a, a kernel or an idea, and they've built layers on top of them. They've become so fixated on those layers of practice that they've lost sight of the heart condition out of which alone those practices have any value. The religious authorities, the Pharisees in particular, miss the significance of Jesus' coming because they have made means to ends into ends in themselves. The next two stories show us this as clearly as we could possibly want. The issue here is not fasting, but the Sabbath. The story begins with Jesus walking through a field, and they get hungry, so they take some grain and eat it. And there was no problem with them taking some random guy's grain out of his field. There was actually a provision in the law that allowed you to do that. You couldn't, you couldn't fully harvest it. You couldn't use instruments to, to harvest it. But if you're walking by, you can pick some and, and have a little snack. The problem for the Pharisees is not that they've taken somebody else's grain, but the fact that they've done it on the Sabbath, and therefore... By the Pharisees' definition, they were guilty of harvesting, which was a kind of work and which violated the day that they were supposed to keep holy. And here's the backstory: The Sabbath, significance of the Sabbath. 
at creation, we're told that God finished what he was doing and rested from his work. It's not so much that he took a nap. You know, he wasn't worn out by it. But he rested from his work because his work was done. And he no longer needed doing. So he could stop that work. Does that make sense? It's, it's, a, it's a rest in the sense of ceasing his work. And a symbol of the perfection of what he had made. And so he sets aside this day that is supposed to be observed by his people as a way of honoring the perfection of what he had done and the fact that he rested from his work. They were to set aside that day where they would rest and not work and use it as a, ch- as a chance to, rem- to, to trust in his provision for them, the fact that he could keep them supplied with the food they needed to live even though they took a day off of work and therefore would not have earned anything or produced anything that day. It was a symbol of their rest and their, their rest on God and his provision for them that mirrored his rest from his work. That's what the Sabbath was created to be. And it became one of the chief symbols, the distinctive marks of God's people. Along with circumcision and the temple uh, and, and the law, they had the, the practice of the Sabbath day that set them apart from the, from the other nations that lived around them. Makes sense, in other words, why they would be very serious about how to honor this day properly. The problem is that even though later laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy, books uh, in, in, in the first five books of the New Testament spell out, or the Old Testament, excuse me, spell out some of what it means to rest, what was and wasn't okay if you're going to keep the day holy, later readers decided that these laws weren't nearly specific enough. They needed some more teeth to them. They needed some more examples, some more specific circumstances that we could, so we could be certain that we're not doing something we shouldn't on the Sabbath. And so they developed page after page of specific examples of what you could and couldn't do. These things were designed to show ever more clearly who was and who wasn't faithful, who is following God and who isn't following God. And this is our, based on our interpretation of the meaning of the Sabbath and how significant it is, we say these things are okay or aren't okay. This is another layer added on top of what God had said in, in the law to, to try to help people be faithful to what God has said in the law. It's an interpretation. And they were serious about it. They specified where you could walk and for what purpose. This seems kind of random, but they even specified things like you can't help somebody who's fallen into a pit. You, ha- you can't help them get out. If they might die, you could help them then. But if they're, if they're just okay, but they're stuck in the pit, You've got to leave them in there until the next day. So it's going to be a long day for them, but they'll be okay, and you can keep the day holy. They even said you couldn't assist an animal who's giving birth. That, that horse is on her own and giving birth if she happens to give birth on the Sabbath. For these separated ones, what's the meaning of the word Pharisee? These separated ones, Sabbath regulations had become an all-consuming burden, a test of faithfulness in the smallest of particulars, and obedience to the laws that they had layered on top of what God originally said became the standard by which they judged who was and was not faithful. So they asked, why are you breaking this law? Jesus first gives them a little story from the very Hebrew scriptures that they claimed were authoritative. He tells them, he reminds them that David did something exactly like this. When he was hungry, he and his men went into the, to, to the, the tabernacle and ate some bread that was not supposed to be eaten by anyone but the priests. If David can do this 
and it's okay, how much more can the one Mark presents to us as David's Lord eat on the Sabbath when necessary? But the gist of his response is not the story about David. It's the statement that comes later in verse 27. The key to his response to them is that the Sabbath, he says, was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In that one sentence, in that single sentence, Jesus exposes the central flaw in his opponent's religion. They have confused the means to an end for the end itself. They've confused the means, a day of rest set aside to honor God and to bless his people, and made it into an end in itself, as if the day was the reason for their existence and the basis for their identity. The Sabbath had been a gift to God's people, an opportunity to trust God, to provide even when, when work is given up. And, and ultimately, the writer to the Hebrews would tell us the Sabbath was put in place to foreshadow a rest that Jesus was coming to bring, a rest from our work to try to gain God's favor that is supplied to us in the fact that Jesus has gained all the favor with God we'll ever need. That's what the Sabbath was there to point forward to. That's the intent of the Sabbath. That's the end for which the Sabbath is the means. That's what the Sabbath should have meant to those who had given their lives to studying all of its details. But they had blinded themselves to the true significance of Jesus. They had so elevated things like the Sabbath, things that were intended to show their need for Jesus, that they ended up obscuring the need for Jesus. That's the great irony here. They had so elevated things like the Sabbath that were intended to get them ready for the need that Jesus was going to fill. And having made them into ends in themselves, they obscured the fact that they needed Jesus at all. Who needs this kind of Savior? Who needs saving when you've got the Sabbath regulations to assure you that you're okay? The final story in this section, at the beginning of chapter 3, drives this point home. Jesus enters the synagogue on the Sabbath again. And he encounters a man that's described with a condition called a withered hand. We don't know exactly what this condition would have been. You can imagine, though, that it would have caused him pain and shame and probably deprivation due to inability to work. The whole intent of the law that the Pharisees claimed to have given their lives for was summed up in the command to love God first, right, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. What better opportunity to do that than this man afflicted with this condition, and yet all they see in this man is an opportunity to catch Jesus and another violation of his principles. He is no more than a pawn in their match with the Son of Man. You can almost see them, the way that Mark describes this scene, you can almost see them sort of cowering in the corner waiting to see if Jesus, what Jesus was going to do. They spot the man with the withered hand, they see Jesus coming, and they have seen enough from Jesus to know he's probably not going to be able to resist. He's going to take the bait, and then we've got him. There, right there, in that image of the Pharisees hovering over there waiting to see what Jesus is going to do, you see the image of a hardened heart fixated only on a point of interpretation rather than the real people whose lives the law was designed to bless. 
they're blind to the significance of the one who came exercising a distinctive and powerful authority to heal. When Jesus sees them, we're told that he responds with anger, that he is hurt by their hardness of heart. He asks them, is the Sabbath there to do good or to do harm, to take life or to give life? They've got nothing, and it makes no difference to them. Jesus, with this characteristic compassion, calls the man to himself. He stretches out his hand. He touches him, and it's gone. It is restored instantly. And that is all the Pharisees need to see. It's this latest challenge to their authority that drives them to seek Jesus' life. We're told that they even go out and conspire with the Herodians, who are a, a governing party that work with the, with the Roman Empire to help govern this part of, of, of Israel. They even conspire with them, the most hated of collaborators, in, to, to get rid of their shared enemy, Jesus. These Pharisees missed the significance of Jesus' coming and of the kingdom that he came preaching and establishing in power. They expected that any credible religious figure would be the most faithful of all to the principles that they, that they held dear. But Jesus claim, came claiming something altogether new. And the reason that they missed the point with Jesus, the reason that they didn't get the significance of his coming, is that they built their own ideas about what God did and didn't want. They took good things, the Sabbath, fasting, and they made them ultimate so that when they were confronted with Jesus, he was a threat rather than a solution to their problem. That's how they missed the significance of his coming. So how do we avoid missing the significance of all that Jesus came to bring? What would it take from us to avoid the failure of the Pharisees? I think, first of all, we've got to be careful not to overreact to the Pharisees' interest in externals and in behavior. Jesus is certainly not telling us that what you do doesn't matter, that the only thing that matters is, is your heart, is the intent behind it, and, and that because that's what matters, behavior isn't that significant. Jesus isn't saying that. In fact, he, in his, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he applies this argument that what's behind the practice is most important to make practice even more demanding and stringent. So in, so in that passage, he says, Maybe you think you're okay because you've never committed murder, but if you are angry with someone, you may as well have committed murder against them. You're still guilty of the sin behind the sin. He used this argument to make practice more important, but a practice that's rooted in a right understanding of what is necessary and of where you are before God. So don't overreact to Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees and assume it doesn't matter what you do. Then, on the other hand, don't be a Pharisee. Don't assume that you're living faithfully before God because of any checklist that you've completed, because you've separated yourself, like the Pharisees, from other people by some sort of standard. Think about it. Answer this question honestly. Do, do you believe that God is pleased with you? Do you believe right now that God is pleased with you? And if the answer is yes... Why? And be honest with yourself. Why do you believe that God is pleased with you? If in your answer the life and death of Jesus are not central 
friends, I'm afraid that what you've got is a counterfeit version of Christianity that won't ultimately pass the test. The things that you point to in your life to show that God is pleased with you, they may be very good in and of themselves, but they are worthless if you make them ends in themselves. Now, I, I realize with many of you I'm preaching to the choir, and there's no way that you'd answer the question, is God pleased with you, apart from the death of Jesus. You've, you've learned your answers well, right? All, uh, many of us have learned those answers, and we would never think of answering any other way. But please don't underestimate how deceitful our hearts can be. It is so natural for us to feel good about ourselves based on standards that we create that aren't even rooted in the Bible at all. Maybe, maybe you're convinced, for instance, that the Bible speaks against gluttony. The Bible speaks of your body as a temple to be cultivated and to, pr to be protected, and that's true. But on that basis, you've made a certain interpretation that you're going to be really careful about what you eat, where your food comes from, how you, how you cultivate your body. All very good things. But do you ever find that you're looking down on other people who eat differently? who shop their food elsewhere, who don't have the same regimen that you do. Maybe it's parenting for you, and you've got good, solid, biblical evidence that you're supposed to raise your children well, well that you're supposed to make them obedient and discipline them in love as God does his children, and you're right. But you've come up with an interpretation of that thing, that good principle, that you apply to a certain method of rearing your children. Maybe it's great. Maybe it's really effective. Maybe your kids are perfect. But do you find yourself comparing yourself to other parents who do things differently and feeling good about yourself and maybe resentful towards them? Do you enjoy maybe seeing other kids who aren't as well behaved as, as your kids because it, it reminds you that you have achieved something, that you have achieved a status, a certain level of faithfulness in, a, in this area that you feel makes you more pleasing to God? Maybe that's what's behind those feelings, even if you never analyzed them on yourself. Maybe what's behind that feeling of superiority to a standard that you've kept but that wasn't given to you in the Bible, maybe what's behind that is a, is, is, is a deceptive belief that God is pleased with you because you've been faithful in this standard you've made for yourself. Could be any number of things. You've, uh, you've seen the environment come as a particular powerful issue right now. Maybe you're very committed to living responsibly and being a steward of the natural world that God created, and you've got a good biblical basis for doing that, and you, and you, but you've, you've taken certain steps in your lifestyle that you think are necessary if you're going to honor uh, that command in Scripture to, uh, to be stewards. Do you find yourself looking down on those who don't share your method for honoring God's creation, for being stewards of it? For me, the problem a lot of times was, has been theological correctness, right? So I'm, I'm interested in reading theology and being precise in my understanding of what God teaches in, in the Bible. And so, you know, when I hear somebody's read this, that, or the other, I've, I've had those moments where I'm like, really? That's what you're reading? That's, that's what you're reading? That tells me all I need to know about you, right? There, 
We're all guilty of this. We've all got our own areas that we have set up standards, layers on top of very good things like theology or protecting the environment or parenting or, or you name it. Very good things, even biblical things. And we have layered interpretations of what it means for us to be faithful to those things in practice. And then we hold not just ourselves but other people to those standards. And when we do that, when we do that, we are showing that underneath it all, all the right answers we are Pharisees at heart who believe that God is or is not pleased with us based on the things that we do or don't do. When we elevate these things, when they enter into how we think about where we stand before God or where we stand against other people, they become, they place us in serious danger of missing the significance of Jesus. Jesus came bringing a kingdom that he'd give his life to establish because none of these labor, layers that we build upon God's word, these layers to show how much we've achieved, none of them are worth anything. At best, they are filthy rags or a pile of dung, Paul tells us, compared with the infinite weight of our sin against God. Nothing external can ever replace the need for wholehearted belief in Jesus as Savior. So there's a balance we're trying to strike. It matters how we live. It does. Jesus has given us instructions for how to be faithful. And yet we know that the tem our temptation is to see our faithfulness as the mark of our, our status as pleasing to God. So what do we do? How do we seek to live faithfully without making that the standard on which we hang our lives and our eternal futures. Partly it's a matter of constant prayer. It's a matter of reminding ourselves of the gospel and asking for grace to work in us and to forgive us when we fail. But one key feature is foreshadowed, I think, in Jesus' actions here and throughout the story. I think that we, one way to guard against this is to measure how we live in care for other people. Care for those who are in need, in particular the neediest and most vulnerable among us, is the test of authentic piety and spirituality throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. How do you treat the widows, the orphans, the poor, the aliens, how do you treat them, those who cannot reimburse you for what you're doing? How do you treat them? That tells you whether or not you've met with the God who sent his own son to give his life for you. If you want to know whether or not your actions are rooted in a true and authentic encounter with the grace of God in Christ, then look at the way that you treat other people. Don't get me wrong. You can make this into a Pharisees-type idol. You can believe that because you can, you can spend your life trying to find needs to meet for people so that you can convince yourself and them that, that, that you're okay. It can be turned into, into a pharisaical quest. But that doesn't take away from the fact that this kind of compassion, the compassion Jesus showed to the man with the withered hand in the synagogue, that's what it looks like for someone to have met with Jesus. This compassion is what it looks like for a person to have realized that the bridegroom has come, that the new wine is here. This is what it looks like to be free from the all-consuming quest to do enough 
on your own to attain the favor of God. It sets you free because of your security in what Jesus has done for you to turn your attention to other people and to replicate the love shown to you in Christ in the way that you treat them. You don't have to worry about making yourself right with God. Jesus has done that. So now you can turn your attention to those who need you most and show that Jesus has done that for you by the way that you love them. That's what it means to have met with Jesus, to have grasped the significance of his coming. So how are we to avoid it? How are we to avoid the error of the Pharisees that's so deeply rooted in our hearts? We pray over it. We pray for forgiveness when we fail. We examine our lives to look for evidence of the gospel's working in us and to pray for greater working in us. And we seek to live in love as we have been loved in Jesus. Will you pray with me?